0: Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to the October 2023 edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always, my fearless co-host, Mr. John Boucher. John, how are you? Oh, fearless. That's a... Uh, I don't know about that. It's October. do what, what, what are you scared of? What's your biggest um, fear?
1: Uh... Like, you mean like medically or like just uh, on the street or spiders or what, do you, what are you talking about? Let's go about with here like a
0: spider, like that type of thing spiders, snakes, what have you.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm not good with insects. I enough blood. Very scared of blood. I love blood in wrestling. <laughs> um, as long as it's not blood, your blood. You like other, my, you like horror movies? I do. I love that blood, but I have trouble giving blood. Um, I have trouble like having blood taken when I go to get physicals or whatever. You know, I, I get very woozy, but I love—I can't get enough of it on a television screen or a movie screen. For I don't know why that is, but that's okay. just how I'm, I'm wired. I'm uh,
0: hmm. I'm I'm good with snakes. Uh, it's interesting once you, once you touch them and and they they're not what you expect. It sort of changes your perspective on them. Spiders, hmm. I'm not so good with. Yeah. So, so in that milieu, that might be mine. Of course, I have constant fears of you know the world ending and and face getting oh, yeah. elected again next year. But you know, <laughs> but you know, as far as tangible things, spiders.
1: <laughs> yeah, those are things those are, we check a lot of the the, the, yeah. the the standard fear boxes. I think. So uh, oh.
0: now this month on the podcast, uh, we are going to look at wrestling in East Texas. In nineteen seventy one. Now, over the last year or so, as as we have covered different territories each month, they all sort of have a slightly different mo. Uh, we've seen some territories, the different local promoters have more say over what goes on in their towns. Uh, and in other territories, it seems that uh, the Booker of the the whole territory sort of controls things. Uh, But last month, we talked about how Gulf Coast was, in many ways, two separate territories in one, with the Mississippi towns uh, being one wing and the towns in Alabama and the Florida Panhandle being the other, even though most of the roster was working back and forth in both places in any given week. But in East Texas, you could possibly say that you have three separate territories each using the same core roster, but with each promoter having m- much more control over what goes on in their towns. In fact, it's to the point where some wrestlers are baby faces in. Some cities in the territory while simultaneously being heels in the other. And I'm not yeah. saying it's a turn that starts in one area and slowly, you know, spreads to the others. This is very clearly wrestlers are slotted as baby faces hmm. in Dallas and Fort Worth, but are heels in San Antonio, Austin, Corpus yeah. Christi, and Houston. So we'll talk about some of those differences. And we'll also take a look at a wrestler who had a brief but eventful run here in 1971 and how his return to Texas spiced things up. As always, we will post a lot of the things that we talk about on this episode to X, the app formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> Remember, two months ago, when I first, uh, I, when I think right after the change, the first episode we did after the change from Twitter to X, I jokingly said, "How long will it be before I go back to calling it Twitter?" And last month, so it didn't even last a month, <laughs> where I was back to saying, "Hey, find yeah. me on Twitter." But yeah, still, yeah. we're going to try and you know do what uh, do what. They want us to do it, uh, but we're going to post a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast to X. You can follow me on X at Al Gets Wrestling. And what we're going to do, and I started this last month, is we're going to use a hashtag for things that are directly related to this podcast. So this month, the hashtag will be CTT OCT23. So CTT, the, abbrevi- you know, the initials of Charting the Territories. OCT, the first three letters of the month of this episode, October, and two, three, the last two digits of the year. Oh. And that will be the naming convention all the way through. So nice. every every post I make that has content uh, related to this podcast from, from this month's podcast will have that hashtag. And from there, you can click on that hashtag or tap on the hashtag and all the other posts relating to this episode will will show up as well. Beautiful. That's and a great of idea. Of course, yeah. And all our regular features, including John plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling trivia. This month I learned, and as always, we kick things off with stuff John bought me off eBay. Mm-hmm. So, John, this month, uh, this month you sent me a record, uh, and you've sent yes. me records in the past, but yes. this is the first one that is a forty-five. And mm-hmm. I think our listener base is old enough to know what a 45 is. We don't have to explain what records are and the difference between <laughs> 33 and a third and 45. But this is a record, and it's a little confusing to to read the <laughs> titles. But basically, the titles of the songs, there's two songs, one on each side. The titles of the song on side A is apparently called Harry, and side B is called Battle Royal. Mm-hmm. And these, uh, as a, first off, do you know anything more about this or did you just and on, the, on the cover of the uh, on the of the sleeve is a picture of Ricky Dozan and and the word and, and the word Ricky Dozan. So what did you know about this when you when you bought it for me? So despite
1: the appearance, its appearance, it is not a record of Ricky Dozan singing along with a backing band. Uh, I believe this 45 is taken from a full length record, a longer record a 12-inch record, a long player, as we call him, which I believe is a soundtrack to a Japanese film about Ricky Dozen that came out in, I think,
0: 1983. Yes, 83 is correct. What I haven't been able to figure out is if the film was a documentary, a scripted movie, or just match footage with with sets of music. I'm... From what little I found, I'm tempted to say the latter. I know there was a movie, uh, a scripted movie about the life of Ricky Dozen that came out 20 years after this, in like 2004. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, this was yeah. definitely 1983. And I, from, from what materials I found online, I think it's more along the lines of match footage is, is the prime thing mm. in this film. And there might have been also some documentary type aspects, but I'm not positive.
1: Yeah, it seems like that. I've, I've only been able to find uh, like a couple posters mm-hmm. uh, from the film and it looks like just like the like, like the like compared to the 2003-2004 movie that it's obviously a dramatic telling of the Do, Ricky Dozan story. This is all just actual photos of Ricky Dozan which would also lead me to believe this is a documentary or
0: match footage. And this is like I think it's sort of like free jazz almost. Oh yeah, it's, it's like the, um. The artist, uh, his name is, and I may be pronouncing this wrong, so forgive me, Yosuke Yamashita. And he was the leader of a a jazz trio, Um, uh, interestingly enough, named the Yosuke Yamashita Trio. I think he had a couple of different versions. I think originally he performed with two other Japanese musicians and then later, when he moved to the States, I believe he started a new version with two American-based musicians. But it is jazz. I don't know all the different genres of jazz, but I think this comes close to what what we might call experimental jazz. I go
1: with it's that. It's a little jazz. more avant-garde
0: yeah. than you know your Miles mm-hmm. Davis type stuff. Uh so we're going to play a little snippet. Oh for you all from uh, the B side, which was entitled Ah. Battle Royal. So there you go. That was a brief a portion of battle royale from the yeah, Yosuke yeah. Yamashita trio. Yeah,
1: I uh, so
0: That's I, I must admit wild. that I
1: do I do enjoy the free the free jazz. Like the I'm a fan of like Albert Eiler or Net Coleman, the, the, that sort of wacky stuff. I enjoy that. So this I, I'm 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 not as as uh, repulsed by this as uh, some some other 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 listeners. Maybe I kind of enjoy this stuff.
0: Before we begin talking about East Texas this month, I want a couple of quick follow-up items from last month's podcast where we talked okay. about Gulf Coast. So first is, one of the things I mentioned was that during 1971, they uh, in the spring and summer, they ran a couple of big shows at the Municipal Auditorium in Mobile, which drew very big houses. And then they that became their weekly venue from that point on in Mobile. Um our, our good pal Sparks, uh, Sparks. X, uh, Sparks Third Coast, I believe is his handle on X, pointed something out to me that I knew in the back of my mind, but I didn't make the connection. Uh, and that's when uh, they ran Mobile in the complex that housed the municipal auditorium, there was a second smaller venue named Expo Hall. And many times that was the venue they ran. Huh. So so to say they did well enough because of Bobby Shane that they moved to a ginormous weekly venue and ran it for years afterwards is not a true statement. Uh, they did move to that, that larger, you know, that complex, but at times based on attendance and trends and who was on the card, they probably ran the smaller venue more often. And this is something that actually comes up in other places as well. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma – the venue they ran for many years was part of a larger complex that had either two or three different venues as part of the whole hmm. grounds. So while we often know whether they ran the cent- the civic center or the arena or assembly hall or whatever it is, we don't always know that the same hmm. goes for, uh, when they ran at the fairgrounds and this would be in Oklahoma city and in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, on most fairgrounds complexes, there are several venues suitable of house, you know, of seating a large number of fans. And so based on uh, attendance trends, they might choose to go into a smaller venue or a larger venue. In fact, next month on this podcast, uh, the weekly shows in the major city. Uh, on next month's territory, was in the same thing. It was part of a fairgrounds complex that had different size venues that they went back and forth to depending on what they had. So Hmm. as far as trying to keep track of attendance and if it was a sellout or a good house or not, if you're not sure of the specific venue Hmm. they ran each time, this is another reason why I don't focus as much on attendance stuff. Not only because Uh. we don't have it, but in some cases, (laughs) if we're not positive... Which which venue inside the complex they ran, we might not know if that house was good or bad. Yep. Hmm. And then I got another uh, tidbit of info from my good friend Ooh. Bo James, and this was uh, what Bo uh, told me based on a conversation he had years ago with Cowboy Bob Kelly. And a couple of points. The first one was regarding uh, considering this as two separate territories. They typically they generally had two bookers and, and it was Cowboy Bob Kelly and Lee Field. But what they would do is they would switch which one booked the Mississippi end and which one booked the Alabama Florida end, whether it was once a year or every six months. I'm not sure. But in a way, it's similar to what Jarrett and Lawler did. Sticking the same Um, thing, yeah. You know, where they would just alternate which one was the book, was the booker. Here, they're alternating who books which side. So each side has a, you know, six month or 12 month or whatever. You know, run under, yeah, yeah, refresh. Uh, But the other thing he told me was a story about Bobby Shane. And we mentioned Shane had a short run here and we questioned why it was so short. Um, What Cowboy Bob Kelly told Bo was that Shane coming here as a heel was absolutely a tryout of sorts from the the higher-ups in the NWA to see if he could get over working as a heel, knowing full well that even in the era where word didn't get out, Gulf Coast was even more removed from the rest of the wrestling world, that Mm. there was no chance of it getting out, which explains why when Shane left here and went to work for McGurk and then in East Texas, he was still a baby face. um, So, uh, and they also, they understood if it got over, if it worked, Shane wasn't going to stay too long. So that's probably another reason why, as you speculated, he did not get the, the big singles title Mm -hmm. here, the Gulf Coast heavyweight title. Oh, interesting. This is so interesting. Wow. But then he told me another story from Cowboy Bob, which, which I find fascinating. So, um, After that run, he did come back for several big shows, mostly in Mobile, um, uh, throughout the year. At one point late in the year, according to Cowboy Bob Kelly, Shane uh, held Lee Fields up for more money. He said, I want a percentage of the house if you want me to come back and work for you. Wow. So Lee Fields said, okay, you're booked on December 22nd in Mobile. John? You have hmm. a, a in front of you. I believe you have a copy of the ad for the house show in Mobile. Got it. Got it. Is yep. there anything interesting given what we just learned about Lee Fields agreeing to pay Bobby Shane a percentage of the house? That uh, you see anything interesting in that ad?
1: Uh all all seats are one dollar. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. What so, a, yes, what a, he told a... Bobby Shane, okay, I'll give you a percent of the house. And then the show he was on, he slashed ticket prices.
1: <laughs> now, I
0: didn't think of that at yeah. all the first time I looked at okay. that. So. Now, <laughs> to follow up on that, I will say this. This oh, was something good. a lot of territories did around the holidays. This was three days before Christmas. Reduce yeah. prices or let kids in free, things like that. I know for a fact the next two years they did the same thing on the Christmas show. So oh. it may not necessarily be, I'm going to do this one thing to screw Bobby Shane so much as, yeah. well, you know what? We were going to have reduced ticket prices on December 22nd. So that's going to be the date I'll give to Bobby. I bring you in. As yeah. As, as so it, it's whether you call that the chicken or the egg, you know, uh, but that that's just a funny story. And also I'll say Shane did come back after that show for, Big shows for the next couple of years. So, oh. so what? You know, it's funny, and yeah, probably screwed Shane a little bit, but it wasn't a. It didn't lead to Shane, you know, getting mad and quitting. It wasn't like gotcha, a, gotcha. a Blassie in Southern California situation in, in 1971, where yeah, yeah, yeah. Blassie was mad that the fake reported house because he believed that because <laughs> he believed that the fake reported house was less than the what he thought the real house was, even though it was faker than fake. Or yeah. Fake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, want to begin by mentioning. Uh, I found out uh, a few days ago from a one of our listeners or followers on Facebook that uh, Count Drummer, Bulldog Drummer, passed away. Yeah, uh, yeah. and this was back in July. Uh, but he sent me the uh, a notice from the um, from the funeral home, and the, the the name and date of birth, everything matched up. Of course, you remember mm. on on this podcast last year we uncovered a, a lot of information about the real life of bulldog drummer that had never been documented before. Yep. And, um, a, a lot of the stuff, particularly the artwork, uh, the things he did with his art later on came from this Facebook, uh, f- friend of ours. So I'd like to thank him, uh, Dave Crawford for passing this info along. I actually, uh, asked Greg Oliver. I, I said, you know, do you want to write an obituary, uh, for slam wrestling for drummer? He says, uh, why don't you do it? Oh, why? Wow, so uh, nice. as we're recording this, I uh, I okayed the final version. Wow. Uh, I I wrote up a story, sent it to Greg, sent it back to me with notes and uh, some pictures and stuff. And I uh, okayed that version. I believe by the time this podcast comes out, that will be up on Slam Wrestling. So uh, nice. you can either listen to our podcast from last year or read uh, Count Drummer, whose real name was Bob AB, A-E-B-I. Uh, on SlamWrestling.com. Wow. So East Texas in 1971. Mm, uh, mm. As I mentioned earlier, there are basically three different wings of the territory. The three promoters we're discussing are Fritz von Erich, Jill Blanchard, and Paul Bosch. And a lot of people uh, consider Houston to be its own territory. And what I'll say is this. You're not wrong. You're, You're not wrong to consider it as such. Paul ran his town. He seems to have had complete say over what goes on. But in the early 70s, probably up through 78 or so, he is booked, actually, I'd say more through 76 or so. He's booking pretty much all of his talent uh, that's on, that's on his weekly cards through Fritz's booking office in Dallas. As is Joe Blanchard, who's running San Antonio, Austin, Corpus Christi, and some other towns. There are booking all their talent out of Fritz's booking office. And, and that's and that's really why I have lumped all them together, is is we're using the concept of the booking office. And, of course, in later years, Bosch, particularly when Blanchard split with Fritz and Blanchard started Southwest and Bosch went with Blanchard, that's when he starts supplementing his cards with Bockwinkle and Tommy Rich yep. and, and that sort of thing. And, and then, of course, a couple years after that, he goes with Watt's. And Mid-South. But when you look at the weekly cards in Houston in the early 70s, it's Fritz's crew, plus occasionally uh, the world heavyweight champion for a one-off. Sometimes Dory's in the whole territory for the week. Sometimes he just comes into Houston. And as you get into the 70s, some of Bosch's trainees are, are, are working the undercards. Guys like Leo Seitz, Tiger Conway Jr., Bill Lehman who later became Siegfried Stonka. Um, of course, in much later years, uh, Tom Pritchard. But by and large, he's using Fritz's crew, as is Blanchard. So uh, to do our, our rankings and our data and our spot ratings and our feuds, we're taking all of them together. Because uh, yes, they each had their own storylines and feuds and programs. But again, if they're using the same crew... The main eventers are always going to be, you know, they're going to be main eventers everywhere. It's not like Wahoo didn't get over in San Antonio so Blanchard wouldn't push him. A main eventer in any part of East Texas is going to be a main eventer in all of East Texas. They just each get to put their own little spin on it. Yep, And the idea, the concept of the booking office, which, of course, Fritz ran it wasn't originally the Dallas booking office. In fact, just a few years earlier, I believe it was the Houston booking office. So, John, mm. I think you're you're more well versed in the pre seventy one stuff than I am. <laughs> so, if you could sort of give our listeners a brief sort of yeah. history, uh, and particularly what happened in nineteen sixty six,
1: yeah, it's late with with Houston.
0: Yeah, sixty six is
1: where stuff really starts getting getting interesting. Uh, but Houston you can go all, Houston's sim, the most simple of the, of the early ones to talk about, I'll do that one first, like you know all the way back to the 20s even before Morris So Julius Siegel, is the older brother um, but for our intents and purposes we can talk mostly about uh, Paul Bosch had been involved in the Houston office in various capacities since 1947 or so after retiring because of an injury sustained in a car crash. And uh, Morris Siegel passed away in late 66. And the next year, Bosch made a deal with Siegel's widow, widow bought the promotion. Moving to Dallas, here we've got Ed McLemore who'd been promoting in Dallas. Since the early 40s, after working underneath Burt Willoughby, who'd been promoting since back in the 30s, Macklemore had kind of a rough run there at certain points. A well-documented kerfuffle back in the early 50s after a disputed title change between Danny McShane, Red Berry, wrestlers going on strike, Macklemore leaving the NWA, the Sportatorium getting burnt down, a very big and costly mess Eventually, amends are more or less made, and it's business as usual for a few years uh, with Siegel, like you said, supplying talent to Dallas. Business as usual, that is, until about 1965, uh, when Fritz starts promoting on his own, breaking away from Macklemore. And what's important here is that he did this, surprisingly, with the support of the other NWA promoters, including, most importantly, Sam Muchnick. And if one, if not the main reason Fritz was able to do this was because he was able to sort of leverage his value as a box office draw in order to get talent from other promoters, be it Dory Senior, Bob Geigel, Muchnick, uh, you know, the, the Barnett, et cetera, et cetera. And before Muchnick went ahead and fully endorsed uh much as it consisted that once Fritz won the war, which looked like he was going to do, he wanted Fritz, for the overall good of the business, uh, wanted him to hire back the people that he put out of business. So it would appear to outsiders that there was a, a unified front to the, with the NWA. So when you read about Fritz, partner quote-unquote, partnering with Ed McLemore, there's a lot more happening behind the scenes than going into business together. There is Fritz essentially went out on his own, hired Macklemore back, along with Ed Watt, I think, was another guy. Uh, Macklemore passed away in 69. Joe Blanchard in San Antonio, another interesting story. Blanchard and Fritz go back to the 50s, way back. Um, Prior to Fritz gaining control in Dallas, Frank and Dorothy Brown, a couple, had run the town since the mid-late 40s, I think. But when Fritz was in control, he threatened to stop sending talent to San Antonio unless the Browns sold a controlling interest in their office to Joe Blanchard, which they did. So you really have this whole region of East Texas changing very dramatically in the, the mid-60s, first with Fritz going out on his own, more Siegel passing away in the middle of all this. You know, it's almost like a, like a reset button got hit where Siegel, Mclemore, and the Browns were just, boom, replaced with Bosch, Fritz, And and But here in 71, everyone is more or less working together and have remained copacetic, peaceful for about the next, like you said, next six, seven years years or so. I think think 78
0: is when the cracks. But however well they're getting along publicly, it's probably at at the drop of a hat, any one of them might have, you (laughs) know— decided now I'm, I'm, I'm done with playing nice. It uh, reminds like a power me cake. of the spot that Buddy Landell used to always do when he was in a tag team match, when they would do a, uh, a cross up spot with his partner and then he'd make up with him, And then as soon as the other wrestler would turn his back, Buddy would motion like he was going to attack him from behind. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. the heel would turn back yeah, around yeah. and Buddy would be like, oh, I'm going to give you a hug. You know, yes. it seems that's sort of what was going on here, a, a, uh, you know, a, a delicate detente shall we say. Yes, exactly. So uh, the four main towns in the territory, all of which were run just about every week, are Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, and Houston. And it's really interesting that Fort Worth and Dallas not only were both weekly towns, but were run on consecutive nights. Uh, Fort Worth was Mondays, and Dallas was Tuesdays. Now, of course, today, we refer to Dallas-Fort Worth as, as the Metroplex, as as one giant metropolitan area. In the early 70s, uh, per data I have from the U.S. Census Bureau, they were considered two separate metropolitan areas. Uh, The term the the Census Bureau used was metropolitan statistical area. However, they're about 30 miles apart, and they both get the the same TV stations. So... For the most part, you know, when we talk about these territories, we say each town could have their own narrative. What I really mean is each TV market, because Mm. TV is what drives the storylines, and the angles and uh, where they, you know, announce the rematches and the steps for the house shows. So here, uh, much like last month when we talked about Mobile and Pensacola being run generally off the same TV, the same thing happens here. So what happens on Mondays in Fort Worth, can affect what happens Tuesdays in Dallas. Uh, There's one instance early in the year when Toru Tanaka is the American heavyweight champion. He loses the title to Fritz in Fort Worth on Monday. And the next night in Dallas, they have a title match, and Fritz announces the new champion having won it the night before, and he loses it back to Tanaka. Huh. Also, when Dory Funk Jr. came in, uh, which I think also was also in January, whoever he faced Monday, uh, the the article uh for the show in Dallas on Tuesday said whoever wins the title match between Dory Funk and you know Fritz or whoever will defend against Tanaka or whoever on uh, Tuesday. Yeah. So they they couldn't keep them as separate cities. Whereas Blanchard's towns did what we generally talk about with other territories where they repeat title changes and and repeat storylines and angles and finishes and feuds. So with Blanchard, who had his own TV, uh, which I believe was taped in San Antonio, may have been bicycled around, may not have. But when they would do a title change in Blanchard's towns, uh, Wednesdays was San Antonio and Thursdays was, I think, Austin or Beaumont. But if he does a title change on a Wednesday in San Antonio, he typically repeats that title change on Thursday in Austin. So when Mm. Pepper Gomez beats Johnny Valentine in San Antonio to win the Texas heavyweight title, the next night in Austin, Valentine came out with the Texas title to defend it against Pepper, who won and won the title again. Mm. (laughs) Corpus Christi was run 36 times during the year. Austin and Beaumont were the Thursday towns. Um, And then Houston, of course, was run on Fridays, uh, of course, promoted by Paul Bosch. As a broad general rule of thumb, he recognizes the same title holders that Fritz and Blanchard do, though he also seems to be the home base for the Brass Knucks title, which is almost exclusively defended in Houston and just a handful of other times in Fort Worth. And with the two other singles titles, there's the American heavyweight title and the Texas heavyweight title. They're acknowledged in all towns, but I'll say this. Dallas and Fort Worth seems to be the home base of the American title. And Blanchard's mm. towns seem to focus the Texas, on the Texas title more than the American heavyweight title. But again, when a title change happens in one of the, the three promoters areas, it's generally acknowledged in the others as well. Now, when you look at the calendar, it's interesting because Monday and Tuesday are Fort Worth and Dallas, which are Fritz's towns. Wednesday and Thursday are San Antonio and Corpus Christi, Austin, Beaumont, and some others, which are Blanchard's towns. And then Friday is Bosch. So there's a nice little sequence. First two days is Fritz. Next two days is Joe. And Friday is Bosch. And then on Saturdays, they typically run these smaller spot shows. They could have run – they usually – for sure ran two, and there are some weeks where they may very well have run more than that. They may have run a third small spot show somewhere. Uh, my guess would be, by and large, one spot show would be somewhere in Blanchard's domain, and the other would be somewhere in Fritz's domain. Uh, occasionally, they went even further east than Houston into uh, Port Arthur and Beaumont. I think Blanchard would have run those. I don't think Bosch ran any spot shows, but I'm not positive. So now uh, let's look at uh, some of the differences uh, in how each of these promoters ran their towns. And that is the fact that there are some wrestlers who are slotted as a babyface for one and as a heel for the others. They all had their separate TVs. Uh, Fritz was presumably doing his in Dallas or Fort Worth. Blanchard did his in San Antonio. In fact, on at least at least some of the Wednesday night San Antonio house shows were hybrid TV tapings slash house shows, uh, similar to what you saw what we see in Portland or what we saw in Southern California, um, where the first few matches uh, would be taped for TV and then the main events wouldn't air on the TV. They mm-hmm. they you know just be for the live crowd. Houston, I believe, Bosch taped TV Saturday morning. So he had his house shows Friday nights, and then the crew, I guess, would stay over and do TV (laughs) on Saturday morning. Of course, without the internet and with the wrestling magazines generally covering things in broad strokes and being several months out of date, they were able to do this. So we're going to run down the roster, and we're going to note who was a heel and who was a babyface, and if that was different in different parts of the territory. And when we talk about these guys, John and I are going to try and do some rapid fire fun facts about many uh, of these wrestlers. We're going to try and do it quick. Sometimes we need to give a little background of the stories, but we're going to try and just bebop, <laughs> bebop it out. Bebop. So we're going to start with the main eventers. And of course, you can see the full roster at chartingtheterritories.com. And these wrestlers are placed into categories based on their spot rating, which is our statistic that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards. So starting with the main eventers, the uh, highest ranked wrestler based on spot rating in this territory during the year was the babyface Wahoo McDaniel. Fun fact about Wahoo.
1: I did not know this until fairly recently. One point held the Oklahoma uh, school
0: record for the longest punt. at 91 yards. That's a long punt. Big punt. Yeah, so now uh based on current data on wrestlingdata.com, Wahoo and Ric Flair had 224 documented and or scheduled singles matches against one another. As of huh. right now, I don't believe there is any other one-on-one combo with more documented singles matches than that. Huh. Um Bobo and Chic is the one that everyone thinks would 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 be the answer. Right now, as far as what's documented, there they have 171. Based on what I've seen from the Sheik's territory and how complete I believe the records are, I think there are enough undocumented matches between them to, if not get them over 224, get them awfully close. And mm. because Wahoo and Flair singles matches mostly took place in Mid-Atlantic and some in Florida— those two areas have been very well researched and are probably very complete. The Sheik's is not. So when I say they had the most matches, I mean the most documented matches up to this point in time. Huh. Um, so probably Sheik and Bobo, but Wahoo and Flair may be in second place. Hmm. Uh, number two on our uh, spot rankings is Johnny Valentine. And Johnny was slotted as a babyface in Dallas and Fort Worth from January through October and in Houston from April through July. And at other times, the other times he was a heel. And in San Antonio, he was always a heel for this year. Now, in the case of Valentine, especially in Houston, might not necessarily be a babyface so much as what we would today call a tweener, just a tough badass who begrudgingly earned the respect of the fans and found yeah. himself in a beef with the heels. But in Dallas yeah. Fort Worth, he is very clearly teaming with other baby faces and wrestling against other heels exclusively. Now, is he kissing babies on his way to the ring? Probably oh, not. not. But he, yeah, <laughs> but he is clearly a baby face. Yeah, uh, i read a, I read a thing about Johnny
1: Valentine. Apparently, when he would drive from town to town, so making the towns, you know, he would always insist on listening to classical music. Which, for some reason, because it's him, is super creepy. You know, <laughs> it's like a Hannibal Lecter sort of thing. You know, right? It like, oh, just creeps
0: me out. I don't know why. Or like oh. how mankind's original music was that like that slow yeah. Yeah. piano yeah. Yeah. type <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. Now we're talking about Wahoo and singles matches. Wahoo and Johnny Valentine. Face one another in at least 157 documented singles matches. Now, Mm. as I said, Valentine, of course, was a tough SOB, but believe it or not, he was very inspirational to many as well. Next up on the list is babyface Ray Mendoza. So the
1: little I know about Ray Mendoza, the only that, that prior to wrestling, the boxer, boxed under the name Joe Diaz, I believe. And his career was cut short when he was sparring with some luchadors in the gym and they got a little too rough
0: with him. And that was his entree into wrestling. (laughs) Well, And and Ray had uh, five children who became professional wrestlers, all of whom were the masked Los Vianos. Los Vianos one through five were the sons of Ray Mendoza. Next up, we have Toru Tanaka. Of course, we all uh, you know we all think of Toru Tanaka as a as a heel. However, towards the very end of his run in this territory, Joe Blanchard turned him babyface, hmm. where he feuded with heel Thunderbolt Patterson. While Tanaka is also probably known for teaming up with Mr. Fuji, his other most frequent tag team partner was Mitsu Arakawa. Next up, babyface, babyface, Ernie Ladd. Of course, uh, for much of his career, he was a heel. But in his early his early days in the ring, he was generally a babyface.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised
0: surprised to see to see him as a as, as a face here at this point in his career. Uh, Ladd's two most frequent documented opponents were two of the most charismatic men in wrestling: Dusty Rhodes and the Junkyard Dog. Oh wow. Now, uh, our upper mid-carders who have a spot rating of between .60 and .80. First up is Thunderbolt Patterson. So Thunderbolt came in as a babyface, but he turned heel over the summer and he became King Thunderbolt Patterson. Oh. The uh
1: <laughs> a few years later, 1981, uh Thunderbolt uh I was reading, was given a one-year suspended sentence for failing to report earnings to the IRS. 1981 was also right around the time that uh, old Thunderbolt and Jim Wilson had started their running their outlaw IWL promotion. So I wonder if someone, perhaps a Mr. Barnett, had made some phone calls Ooh, good point. to some people.
0: <laughs> but, yo, know, you're right. Barnett probably stooed him off. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, up next, the spoiler, Don Jardine, who was, of course, a heel.
1: The, uh, <laughs> similar to how Johnny Valentine would insist on classical music uh, being played while on a long drive. Don Jardine apparently would only listen to country singer Marty Robbins, which is a little more easy to stomach for some
0: reason. Uh, yeah, especially if he's working in El Paso. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. The spoiler, of course, I, I think most people know this, but uh, the spoiler was Neil Mascaris's opponent, uh, when Mascara made his Madison Square Garden debut, which was the first time masked wrestlers were allowed to work in the garden. Uh, up next, Babyface Jose Lothario.
1: In I'd uh, say early, in I think it was, yeah, in the Carolinas, I think early in his career, he worked as Joe Garcia, often tagging with a Lee Garcia, who I didn't know was. Better known as Luis Hernandez, who would later become the stepfather of Gino Hernandez.
0: So that's an interesting little connection there that I wasn't aware of huh, until recently. Uh, next is Heel Killer Kowalski, and this is the Killer Kowalski, not Stan. This is uh, mm. the the actual the the trainer of Triple H, Killer Kowalski. Yes, <laughs> yes I know. He had prior to wrestling, it studied
1: uh, as an electrical engineer. Uh, at Windsor University, and work was working uh, in Detroit for the Ford Motor Motor Company before becoming a full-time wrestler. Apparently, he was working part-time as a wrestler while working for Ford. Asked for some time off to do some wrestling, boss wouldn't give it to him, so he he quit,
0: and uh, obviously worked out pretty well for the killer. There. Yeah, I think he made a good choice. Yeah, I just I, I just caught this myself. So here, back to back, we have. Lothario, and Kowalski. You have the trainers of Shawn Michaels and Triple H. Wow! I didn't pick that up. Wow, look at that. That's a, how, how serendipitous. Yes. Uh,
1: next up is heel Chris Markoff. <laughs> I had a note on him. I think we mentioned this when we talked about him a few uh, a few months back, that he worked as two different Von Erichs. Uh, once as Franz, and once as Naldo, perhaps the laziest of all the Jack. Oh, Thuffer, it could have been Hans. He couldn't have
0: been Hans and Franz. Yeah, Naldo. <laughs> Naldo von Eric, yes. I'll well, use an N instead of a W. Yeah, now Markov <laughs> here uh, teamed up with Bronco Lubitsch. But aside from Lubitsch, he also held tag titles in different territories over time with various partners, including Angela Paffo, Harley Race, Bobby Shane, Dominic Danucci, and Nikolai Volkov, among others um Hmm. up next babyface pepper gomez we're going to talk uh, at length about pepper later on in the podcast uh also buddy wolf is a upper mid carter now he's generally here as a heel but in dallas fort worth in the fall he turns babyface buddy wolf
1: married to vivian vachon for about three years in the late 70s which is a good for good for buddy wolf yeah that's a
0: that's a that's a nice get that's right yeah that puts him right up there with travis kelsey (laughs) <laughs> good, good for those guys now Wolf guys. Uh, when he was here as a heel in the fall he uh, in the towns that he was still a heel he would often team up with the spoiler and that's interesting because earlier in 1971 in Leroy McGurk's territory Wolf and Jardine teamed up but there Wolf was under a mask as spoiler number two so there oh. they were the spoilers and here it was the Masked spoiler and the unmasked buddy Wolf Interesting. We also have a very brief stay in the territory in 1971 for Dusty Rhodes, who, when he worked close to Austin, which would be Blanchard's towns, he was a babyface, but in the other towns, he was a heel.
1: You know, most of us are probably familiar with Dusty. You know, having a legit athletic background prior to wrestling, but uh, less 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 well known is his flair for the dramatic. As uh, he was a member of the Johnston High School drama club, and in 1961 was named to the District 13 AAA All Star cast. And I, I do have the photos to back this up, which I can post.
0: Yeah, but us. 13 was one of the worst districts. That doesn't mean all that much. That was that's like that's like the NFC South today in the NFL. Also have a uh someone who started the year as a manager managing the team of Markov and Lubitsch, but when Markov left, uh he sort of took his role as Lubitsch's partner, and that is George Tuton Harris.
1: Ah, the old baby blimp. He uh illiterate. For most of his adult life, believe it or not, Um, Jim Crockett Sr., he worked for Crockett for years and years, knowing this, promised him before he passed away uh, that he would find a way for him after his wrestling career to continue to be employed by the Crockett family. Uh, And he did. And he was. And he actually hired a tutor to teach the middle age, like he's pushing 60, to teach uh, George Harris how to read at that advanced age, which I thought was a rare example of a promoter being like a, a sweet that's well sweet. but
0: he's all but Crockett has always been uh yeah. that, that from everything yeah. I've heard. he was yeah, uh, yeah. The, the not the norm uh, as far as wrestling yeah. promoters go. Now, yeah. I mentioned Harris uh, was a manager turned wrestler. Uh, he ends up leaving the territory in August, and his last match here was in Houston against Paul Bosch. Huh. Uh, Bosch would typically uh if from 68 through 75, he would typically do one match a year. And it was usually against Gary Hart, because uh, Hart was in and out with the spoiler. Um, but uh, this the year, I guess Harris was the uh, was the manager in the territory, so that's who huh. Bosch worked. Also, Babyface yeah. Dean Ho uh, rounds mm. out our upper mid carters Interesting, Dean Ho real name Dean
1: Higuchi. Uh, my only fa- fact, not even a fun fact, just a fact: born in 1933. I mentioned this here because at the time of his death. His birth year was listed as either 1938 or 1940, uh, neither of which makes sense with his career timeline and other things that happened in his career. But I found some paperwork, and he was, I can
0: say, definitely, unequivocally born in 1933. Yeah, and Dean had some solid bodybuilding cr- credentials before entering wrestling, not at the level of Pepper Gomez, but but they were legit. Uh, that's always how he was building wrestling, but these were uh, legit credentials in the bodybuilding world now our mid carters are uh heel bronco lubich mm. in a
1: uh, this is fun fun little thing in the late 40s bronco as uh bob i don't know how to pronounce it i'm probably going to botch this loop city l-u-p-s-i-t-y his real last name uh was on the same amateur ymc wrestling team as maurice vachon both yeah. in the same 174 weight class uh
0: as well <laughs> Now, what I'll say about Lubitsch is uh, somewhere in Texas, there's a match that started in 1989 <laughs> that hasn't ended yet because Lubitsch took so long to get down on the mat to make the three count and, and unfortunately passed away before he could finish it. He was doing it with his feet probably at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, imagine, Z- imagine Lubich ma- uh, refereeing a match with Zbysko in it. Oof. How long Jeez. it would like, how little actual wrestling there would be in a 60 minute Broadway match between uh, Zabisco stalling and uh Lubitsch taking his sweet time to it's like a Stephen Wright joke, you go back in time, probably, you know. <laughs> uh, a couple of baby faces, uh, in the mid Carters, George Scott
1: read something once, uh, that George Scott claimed that in 1975, speaking of outlaw promotions, Eddie Einhorn offered him, offered him $250,000 a year to leave Crockett and wow. become his booker. Wow. Uh, also, Tim Woods. Tim Woods, quite quite the renaissance man from what I've read about him. a saxophone player, motorcycle enthusiast, collector, photographer. Also, my favorite thing about Tim Woods, uh, claimed to have the largest collection of Lou Thez photographs in the world.
0: Now, here, he started the year under the mask as Mr. Wrestling, but he unmasked voluntarily before getting a uh, shot at the Texas title in Houston facing Johnny oh. Valentine. Um, of course, this was something they did in a lot of the territories. To get a title, you had to take the mask off. So that's how Woods unmasked in East Texas in 1971. Huh. Next up, a couple of heels. First up, we have Bob Orton Sr., Who, of course, at the time was not called Bob Orton Sr., just Bob Orton. (laughs) Just regular Bob Orton. He
1: had, I was ready to say, had spinal fusion surgery where he had his fourth and fifth lumbar vertebrae removed, replaced with a bone from his hip. Not from a wrestling injury, but from a trampoline accident he had in middle school.
0: Was he wrestling against the Hardys? Yes,
1: yes. He Uh, took a twist of fate.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, they they loved that trampoline back before they you know got oh, got into the ring. Uh, so Bob Orton Sr. and then also another heel, Gorgeous George Jr.
1: One of my favorite little tidbits. I don't know if we talked about this when we talked about uh, to him a few months back was. After losing a hair match on his way out of uh, Arizona, I think it was like 1965 or something, he was able to parlay his new short hair into a a new, albeit temporary gimmick, where he showed up in Missouri as
0: Dick Marshall, the Fighting Marine, which I love. Stuff like I, that. I love that story. What a great way to take, you know, that that <laughs> step, the losing the hair, and be yeah. able to spin it into a new role in a different territory, in an era where no one in in Kansas City had any idea of what had happened in yeah. Arizona or who this guy was. And so cool. if you're okay with a, a small amount of stolen valor, you know, then I guess it's okay. <laughs> also, uh, here is a baby face, which we mentioned earlier, Bobby Shane. Mm hmm. I think we mentioned I may have mentioned this one we
1: talked about. We did a Bobby Shane, a real deep look into Bobby Shane, maybe like a year or two ago. But uh, as a kid, uh used to mow Wild Bill Longson's lawn. It's one of the ways he got his feet in the wrestling business, along with being a, a gopher for Sam Muchnick. Also, baby face Nick Kozak. Mm, I think he is. He generally credited with being one of the guys to train the Iceman
0: King Parsons. Sounds about right. So trained Iceman King Parsons, who, and we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, King Parsons' real, legitimate name was King. Not only was it King, he was King Parsons Jr. Mm. Now, as far as Nick Kozak, aside from his brother Jerry, his most frequent tag team partner was John's favorite Irish pizza place owner. Ooh. Who was? Irish Mike Clancy, baby. Yes. Nice. couple more baby faces. Bob Burns and then George Geyser. George Geiser, ex, uh, ex-football ex player, drafted
1: by the Bills, 67, played for the Broncos in 68. So they played in the off seasons, I think, before then. I think this was his first full year in the wrestling business.
0: Yeah, I I uh, I yeah, he had some matches uh around Texas uh, for a couple of years. Like you said, I believe in the off season, he played college at SMU. Hmm. So he's got Texas roots. Oh, yeah. Um and and he yeah. actually uh, when he was with the Broncos, he played in 10 regular season games and started 7 of those uh, on the offensive line in 68. Hmm. In Another babyface was Bob Ramstead, who was also sometimes billed as Ramstad, and also sometimes using the first name Buck instead of Bob. Mm.
1: Yeah, he's another guy's well regarded as an amateur. I think he wrestled two NCAA tournaments, uh, second in the Big Ten Championship,
0: '66. Uh, I think uh, this is the year for that. Yeah, I've I've got him in '64 and '65. Huh. We'll uh, but he 65. may have also been in 66. Now, now in 1965, he was one of four future professional wrestlers in the 65 NCAA wrestling championships. Oh, can wow. you name any of the other three? I hope you can name one. Okay. What, you're 65? 65, yes. 65, 65, 65, 65. Jack Briscoe. Correct.
1: Okay. And uh, the others? Br- uh, Bob Root, Banner, Von Raschke.
0: No. Okay. Uh, Larry Lane and George McCreary. Okay, I wouldn't have got this. And Larry Lane is not Lenny Lane, not Jericho's partner from uh, Uh. WCW, but uh, Larry Lane who uh, got got pushes in Amarillo in the dying days of Amarillo and also in Stampede as well. So yeah, four future pro wrestlers uh, and one future NFL star, Jim Nance. Not the broadcaster Jim Nance, but the Syracuse University (laughs) football player. Who also was a champion wrestler. He was a champ. He, in 65, he won, I believe, the heavyweight division. Briscoe won the 191 division.
1: Gotcha.
0: Ramstead was in 177. Briscoe actually beat Larry Lane in the first round in 65. Huh. Now, also uh, in the mid cards, uh, we have Joe Blanchard. And Joe obviously is a babyface when he's wrestling in San Antonio. But when he's working in Dallas, Fort Worth, he's positioned as a heel. In fact, I think it's the next year. Um, I think he actually has a little feud with Fritz, which is funny considering the behind-the-scenes dynamics that we've talked about. <laughs> yeah. To 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 risk putting them in a the ring against one another when they have yeah. this tenuous relationship seems yeah. unwise. But you know, it's wrestling.
1: Yeah. He also played four years of pro football uh, in Canada with Gene Kaniski and Wilbur Snyder. Were among his teammates, and I think his quarterback uh, was was named Ted Tully, who he named uh, his son Tully after. Hmm.
0: Also, we have Babyface Klondike Bill.
1: Again, here's another guy. You don't think you don't think Klondike Bill. You don't think great amateur wrestling credentials, but he did. He was actually at the 1960 Olympic trials for Team Canada, and you can see his name in the papers. Uh, he was notable because he was the heaviest of all the Canadian wrestlers, uh, 315 pounds at the time. Oh
0: goodness! Wow. Yeah. Uh, also have heel wrestler George Holtz, and that's spelled H-U-L-T-Z. Yep. Another ex-football guy, right? Uh, mm-hmm.
1: St. Louis. I think his brother uh, Don also played pro football. I think he was slightly,
0: slightly, slightly more successful. H- yeah, his, his brother was player. somewhat successful uh, in the NFL. Now, George Holtz, his wrestling career came to an end, uh, when he was in a car accident, the car was driven by Bob Sweetan. Uh, and this was, I believe 73, uh, but uh, the car blew out a tire and hit a culvert. Also in the car was Duke Myers. Duke broke both his legs. Sweetan broke, uh, numerous bones in his feet, in both his feet, and maybe even possibly a little further up the leg. Um, Hultz uh, does have at least one match several months after the accident, but I think that's it. So by and large, the accident ended his in-ring career, which uh, mm. hadn't lasted very long and probably wasn't going to be much anyway, but yeah. certainly getting in a, getting injured in a car accident is a way to expedite your exit from the business. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then uh, also on the mid-carters is babyface Luke Brown.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, prior to wrestling, Luke Brown, standout high school athlete in basketball, which is not surprising for a, a man of his height, and football, and actually went to Xavier University on a football scholarship.
0: Best known for teaming with Grizzly, although he also teamed a lot with Klondike Bill in more than one place. So yep. Brown and Bill were a team as well. Now, in the preliminary wrestler category, we have Heel Skandor, Akbar,
1: yeah. Again, I know we did another like we did a whole episode basically yes. in Akbar, like maybe maybe almost like two and a half years ago or so. I don't know if he ever mentioned that him and Frankie Kane were cousins. Ah. Yes.
0: I don't know if you yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you mentioned that. But so that's fun. That's a fun little fact. That is that is a fun fact. Yes. We also have a a young he wasn't young. I think he was twenty-eight or twenty-nine, but uh you know, his was still young in his wrestling career, and that was the heel, Jimmy Valiant. Mm.
1: Jimmy Valiant, who was voted the best-dressed male in his senior class. And yes, I have the yearbook photos to prove it. And this actually sounds like a Boogie Woogie Man promo that you wouldn't believe in 1985, but he was the best-dressed
0: male in his senior class. (laughs) It's just cool to me to see that in the same year you have Thunderbolt, Dusty and Valiant, all yeah. here. As a matter of fact, yep. the three of them were all in a match together in Dallas. It was Dusty oh, and wow. Valiant teaming up against Thunderbolt and Johnny Valentine. Wow! Now, of course, Dusty and Valiant were nowhere near experienced enough to be doing their shtick. No. So I, I you know, I would love, I would love to see. And in their prime, all four in their prime in a match together, just wow. to see what Valentine would do with all yes. this, all this, you know, oh. all the shenanigans. Yeah, oh my Boogie God. and Dusty and Thunderbolt. Yeah. Uh, just see, see Valentine on the, standing on the apron with a mean puss on his face. Just and When glaring. he gets tagged in, he just punches all three of them <laughs> and walk, walks out. Yes. <laughs> we also have a heel uh, named Joe Dusick And John, this is not is- that... Joe Dusick. that was my question. Let me rephrase that. This is almost certainly not Joe Dusick. uh <laughs> he's
1: going to be you' be in his sixties
0: right? yes, uh, okay. I believe it was the wrestler who usually worked as Black Jack Slade or just oh, okay. Jack Slade in gotcha. numerous territories. Okay. Uh, we also, uh, you know, uh, uh, and of course it wouldn't be uh, coverage of a pro wrestling territory in the seventies without without, men- without mentioning at least one wrestler who we want to say as little as possible about, of course we already hit our quota with the sweet hand story, but <laughs> yeah. I guess we're going for two here because Sabu Singh is yeah. here. And of course Sabu was Jose Gonzalez. Yeah. Uh, a heel named Gary Fulton. Another one. I don't know much about, not sure if he was, uh, Worked under is, another name at times. Is that Charlie Fulton? I don't believe it was.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, I not, thought
0: I assumed it was.
1: I, uh, interesting.
0: Uh, let me uh, let me pull up the old Google machine here and see mm. if we can figure that out. Uh, while I do that, another heel preliminary wrestler was Mike York. Mike York. We gave some some fun facts about
1: Mike York. I believe last month a, right. a, a, a standout. College base basketball uh, baseball. baseball player. Yeah, standout college baseball
0: player. Uh. Uh, so according to wrestlingdata.com, uh Charlie Fulton was Gary Fulton. In fact, his real oh. name was Gary Lee Fulton. So there you go. That pretty much answers the question. So yes, so Fantastic. Gary Fulton is the future Charlie Fulton. Ah,
1: well, he was one of my favorite WWF prelim guys from the early '80s. Um, yeah. I know he did other, but other stuff better it was more popular other parts of the country. But he made tons of money doing that WWF prelim stuff. And uh, I think after his career, he ran a wrestling school and became, I think, a corrections officer or something. I forget exactly what he did,
0: but yeah, I used to like Charlie Fulton. And then last on the list of full-timers in the preliminary wrestler category was Johnny Walker. Hmm. Interesting
1: thing that Johnny Walker, that I I didn't know until fairly recently, is about two years prior to working as Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker had worked as another masked man, as, as the grappler
0: in Florida. I think this was actually right after his run... Here. Yeah. And is- man, when we get to Florida in 71, uh, the, the story about the grappler, there's it's it's the it's a crazy storyline that they got going on. So I don't Ooh. know if you're going to talk about that, but that, no. that's really Not fascinating. I'm excited. Not excited. Um, I also, of course, I find it neat that you have here at the same time, you have Johnny Walker and Tim Woods mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years before. Walker donned the mask as wrestling, too. Now, yeah. here in 71, they actually faced each other once, which was won by Tim Woods, uh, yeah. and they teamed up once uh, in a losing effort to Markov and Lubich. But yeah, it's just wild to me to see that Walker and Woods interacted with one another uh, a couple of years before their famous uh, interactions as yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Wrestling and Mr. Wrestling number two. Oh. Now, do you... Do you always call him Mr. Wrestling number 2 or Mr. Wrestling 2? I usually go Mr. Wrestling 2 or or Wrestling 2 just to keep and it. And so do I. And I think it just it all depends on you know what what you picked up. I like we talked about a while back you you call him Haystacks Haystacks Calhoun yeah. for whatever reason I always call him Haystack. Yeah. I don't um, know, why I just that clicked for me. I yeah. always spell Dick Murdoch. Uh, I always spell Murdoch with an h. Even though for most of his career, it was spelled with a K, but when I got into wrestling, it was when he spelled it with an H. Yeah, same here. And
1: wrestling number two—I when I say number two, I always it makes me think of poop. So,
0: (laughs) well, there you go. Let's have no uh, let's have no poop talk Uh, because we might we might we might be having some next month. So let's let's stay away from (laughs) it this month. oh, Oh God. Now. Uh, among the part-timers, there are a few interesting names. Uh, there's a young Joe Bednarski, who, John, of course, is... Ivan Butsky. Right. We also have Benji Ramirez, Benny Mada, and the mustard-fearing Colonel Stu Gibson. <laughs> and there's also a mass wrestler named El Medico. Now, um, I for a while, I wasn't sure about his identity, but uh, I was speaking with Chris Knight's who's our pal who uh, is an editor for wrestling at Data.com, And he believes that this El Medico was someone whose name you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier this episode, uh, Luis Hernandez. Huh? Interesting. Uh, based on where we can place Luis at various times, the timeline matches up that he could have been this El Medico based on when this wrestler was here when he wow. came and when he left. And of course, Louise having roots in East Texas yeah, yeah. makes it, you know, all the more likely, but the most notable name in the part-timer section and a name you're probably wondering why we haven't, why we didn't mention when we ran down the roster is Fritz von Erich. Hmm. So when I put these rosters together, I have, uh, you know, I, I use math and data because that's what I do, but I have a, um, you know, a criteria for determining if someone is a full-time member of the roster or a part-timer. And basically part-timers meet one of the following two criteria. They either were not booked here as a regular for at least four consecutive weeks or the average number of bookings they had per week was less than 40% of what the wrestlers with the most bookings per week in this territory at this time had. In our records, so for this territory in '71, that number—the high end of uh, the wrestlers that were most frequently booked—we have an average of 5.17 bookings for them per week. So the guys like Wahoo and Valentine and Tanaka and Lubitsch and Markov, the the regulars that were working the whole territory, um, we have records uh, indicating you know they worked on average little over five nights per week, which means anyone that worked less than 40% of that number, which would be just barely over two, would be a part-timer. So Fritz in 1971, he averaged 1.3 bookings per week. As a broad rule of thumb, in most weeks, he would work either in Dallas or Fort Worth. Some weeks he worked both and some weeks he didn't work any. And every now and then, even when he's booked, they would do it. It appears they would do an angle either before the match or during the match where he would get injured and someone else would take a spot. Um. So even the times he is scheduled to wrestle, he's not always wrestling. And he, uh, didn't work in Blanchard's main towns or in Houston at all this year. And he, he worked on six spot shows that we have records for, um, which were all in and around the Dallas area. There's one in Denton, um, which uh, I'm sure was very convenient for him. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But by and large, in the 70s, he's not working full-time. He's not working the whole territory. And even if you just take Fort Worth and Dallas, he's generally working only one of them in a given week, whereas everyone else on the crew was pretty much working both. So I've got him as a part-timer. Obviously, in Dallas and Fort Worth, he's positioned as the top star. He is the American heavyweight champion for a good portion of the year. But um, in the territory of East Texas as a whole, he is uh, a part-timer at this point in time. And and would continue to be a part-timer for like the next decade until he <laughs> <Yeah>. finally <laughs> retired against uh, King Kong Bundy. Yeah. So... Your, your top stars, as measured by spot rating, included uh, Wahoo, Valentine, Tanaka, and Thunderbolt. And all four of those guys are pretty much here for the whole year. I think Tanaka leaves at the end of October. I think Thunderbolt came in in January. But by and large, those four guys are here year-round uh, for 71 and three of those four were main eventers the whole time. And Thunderbolt was a main eventer after his initial push. Once he got pushed up to that status, he then stayed as a main eventer. So because of that, you have something of a log jam at the top of those cards. Mm. You Of course, you have Fritz. Um, and then you have Dory Jr. when he comes in. But by and large, you've got those same four guys. And the top feuds in the territory for the year, all of them involve at least one of those four wrestlers. And a few of them involve both of them. We mentioned, of course, Wahoo was a babyface the whole time. Tanaka was a heel most of the time, except in San Antonio, where he was a face for a few weeks. Thunderbolt was babyface for about half the year and then a heel for the other half. And Valentine was a heel for the whole year in San Antonio and then switched between roles in Dallas-Fort Worth and in Houston. So that you have... A a, diff, a a large number of different combinations of those four that were feuding. Mm. You have Wahoo feuding with Valentine. You have Valentine feuding with Thunderbolt. When Thunderbolt turns heel, you have Wahoo feuding with Thunderbolt. <laughs> and then when Tanaka turns face in San Antonio, you have Thunderbolt feuding with Tanaka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And mm. with Valentine being a face in some areas, he's feuding with Tanaka. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Um, So on our website, chartingtheterritories.com, as part of a year in the life uh, looking at East Texas, we list the top feuds and we measure them by a statistic called FLW score, which stands for Feud Length in Weeks. We also break down two of the bigger feuds on a market-by-market basis. So for the feuds between Wahoo and Tanaka and the feud between between Jose Lothario and Johnny Valentine you can see the progression of those feuds and how um, each promoter, Bosch, Blanchard, and Fritz, uh, may have done things slightly differently yep. uh, with those feuds. And it, it's interesting because in some, sometimes you see the same stipulation match. Uh, in fact, with Wahoo and Tanaka, they do the uh, Indian Strat match. And then in a few towns, they do what's, uh, a combination match where the first fall is an Indian Strap match. The second fall is a judo jacket match. Huh. And if there's a third fall, whoever won their fall in the fastest time, their stipulation, their specialty would be the stip for the third. So it would either be the strap match or the judo jacket match. Huh. But what's interesting is you would think a match like that, that's say, that seems like a blow off. That seems like the, like the, you know the, the way to settle the score. But in some towns it was, and in some towns it wasn't. And in some towns, Wahoo won that stipulation match. And in some towns, Tanaka won that stipulation match. So again, you can look at how each town had their own slightly different narrative of these feuds. Now, attendance-wise, we don't have a lot in the way of attendance figures. We just have figures for five of the weekly cards in Houston and three random cards in Beaumont. Uh, Houston, it sure looks like Wahoo was the big draw this year. Uh, he drew some big houses against Tanaka. And then I think for uh, two matches with Dory Funk Jr. when Dory came in to Houston to defend the title mm. against Wahoo. Now, speaking of big houses and big draws, one of the biggest draws on this podcast, based on the feedback I get from listeners who tell me what what <laughs> they enjoy the most, is the one... That is coming up next. Oh, boy. It's time for John Plays Gordon Sully's Championship wrestling trivia. Okay. Okay. Question number one. Okay. Name the West Coast Club of former wrestlers and boxers in which Count Billy Varga is a member. Is it it Cauliflower Alley Club? That is correct. Okay, okay. Okay. Question number two. And now this one. This may not be legit. This might be fake wrestling credentials. So keep <laughs> okay. so keep that in mind. It Got may it. be true, but okay. Which wrestler was once employed as a Hawaiian cliff diver? I'm going to go Superfly Jimmy Snuka. That is correct. Okay. Now, do you know anything as to whether that's that was legit or not?
1: I uh, I, I don't. I, I okay. Mean, he took, Neither do I. B- in his book, he talks about some diving.
0: I wouldn't lifting. believe anything in his. Freaking no, me neither, but I, yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, two for two, you're off to a good start. Okay. Question number three, who was the winner of pro wrestling illustrated magazines, inspirational wrestler of the year in 1973. Now, first off PWI did not exist in 73. We've talked about this before, yeah. whichever, uh, magazine in that family was around in 73 had yearly awards and once pwi started they retconned it but gotcha so whatever the Aptor mag or at that point this the weston mag um for 1973 who was their inspirational wrestler of the year 1973. This is a tough one. Now, what I'll say is this. I believe the reason this person won that award in this year is because he had to take some time off early in 73 due to heart issues, but came back and had a very productive 73. He also has been mentioned on this episode of this podcast because he was I in East Texas in 71. we will guess Johnny Valentine because I believe he did have a heart attack around that time. That is correct. Ooh. Three for Ooh. three. Okay. Fourth question, is it true or false? Whew. And it may sound similar to a question we asked. If it wasn't last month, it was two months ago. But okay. by sheer coincidence, I, I pulled uh, the, this next card out of the lot. True or false? The Iron Sheik has competed in WrestleMania's one, two, and three. True. Is that your final answer? That is my final answer. That is correct. Ooh, yeah, because we because we it. asked the a previous question was true false about Volkov. Yes, and that was true. Yeah, and you know, given what we know about the Sheik and Volkov's role in the territory in WWF yeah. at that time, if one was, then certainly the other was. Yeah. So WrestleMania won, they went against uh, Wyndham and Rotundo, right? Yep. WrestleMania three, they were in a tag against the Killer Bees. Killer Bees, yeah. And WrestleMania two, Battle Royal, right? They were in the Battle Royal. Yeah. So there Ooh. you go, perfect score. <laughs> Back on it, baby. Back on it. And good. I'm glad. I'm glad you did well this month because John, yes, I'm uh, gonna switch things up. What? Starting next month. Oh, geez. John, okay. You will still be playing Gordon Solie's Championship <laughs> Wrestling trivia. Okay. But you won't be playing it alone. Okay. You will be competing what? against a different guest challenger every oh my God. month. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> you,
1: when? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do, okay. So this is uh, just to, uh, it's so we got... Uh, With the list, this list, I'm the the first I'm hearing this, so the listeners are aware. This is this is just strung on me just now, so I'm still processing. So,
0: we, we, I I give John an outline, and and in many ways, it's more a script than an outline. But I purposely omitted this piece of (laughs) info because I wanted to get John's natural reaction. So, John, this is my natural reaction between now and next month. We are going to be building you an isolation booth. To do this. I've I've worked out all the logistics and yes, we are gonna have a different uh okay challenger join us every month and we're gonna ask both you and the challenger the same four questions and okay. see who wins.
1: I have a question about the question. <laughs> <Okay>. All right. <laughs> um do so my my opponent, if you will, will I know who my Opponent is ahead of time, or will this be a surprise? Each, or have you not decided this yet? Uh,
0: do you do you have a preference? I do not have a preference. Okay. I got no heat with nobody, so it could right. be anybody. Um, well, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll okay. figure it out. I, you okay. know, I, okay. secret isn't the right word. Uh, but you know, uh, it might be something where we just <laughs> the week before the podcast we say, oh, and by the way, the special, you know, the challenger this month is so and so. Uh, uh I uh, you know certainly and and again the questions are going to be random if I if our if our challenger is someone who's an expert on you know the, the Crockett I'm not going to go out of my way to pick a card that has that is Crockett heavy or is not Crockett heavy again it's yeah, all going to be random uh, oh, gen- as a general rule of thumb it's going to be people you know who are listeners of our podcast and have some wrestling knowledge uh, but hopefully hopefully not as much as you do. <laughs> Oh Jesus. Uh and okay, so what it so and I've got John re- flustered
1: now. So, yeah, I'm just looking like, at the repercussion. So okay, say if our guest beats
0: me, what happens then? You study harder for the next month. I, so okay. no, it's not it's not like you're you, oh, you're fired, and he's going to take I over as co-host. Like, like, yeah. like, no, no, oh. it's not going to be that at all. It is uh, just a fun little, okay. a fun little addendum okay. to the trivia. But no, you're 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 going to be playing it every month, and <laughs> if someone wins, they okay. they will just leave with They're a not, their victory. That's what I was. Yes. I thought you were getting to like the new. You have a like a revolving co-host. Okay, cool. No, so oh goodness, okay. no. What? What? what the- John, I, I hit I hit the I- jackpot the first time at the gate co- with a co-host. <laughs> we're not going to okay. change that up. I just want to uh, make things a little more interesting. Okay. I need, I need a quick drink of water. Oh, jeez. Oh, my good. Oh. So while John, while John hydrates. Uh, okay. So many of the oh. top stars here had long stays in the territory. We talked about Wahoo, Valentine, Tanaka, and Thunderbolt being here for m- most of 1971. There was one wrestler who returned to the territory for the first time in several years in January of 1971, and was immediately thrown into the main event mix. In fact, his first match back in the territory uh, was against Dory Funk Jr. And a couple weeks after that, he ends up winning the Texas heavyweight title from Johnny Valentine, and then losing it back to Valentine after some shenanigans from troubleshooting referee Stu Gibson. So we established last month, In this month I learned that, that Gibson was not a fan of mustard, based on an angle he did a decade earlier. But in 1971, we also learned that uh, he was not a fan of Pepper. Pepper Gomez, that is.
1: <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun on our, our, our This Month I Learned segment. Uh, but when looking into the the early life of, of Pepper Gomez, I, I, I did learn two things about him from the, his family's 1930 census forms. Uh, the first was that he had a twin sister named Julie, not, and did they call her salt? <laughs> not, not that I'm aware of. Um maybe sugar. Um and his father was a plumber. So even though Dusty, you know, may have said he was the son of the plumber, Pepper actually actually lived lived the gimmick, if you huh. will.
0: I wonder I wonder if when Dusty and Pepper were here they might have crossed paths a little bit here if uh, Dusty heard that story and sort of took it.
1: He actually apparently used like his father's, you know, plumbing equipment. I guess you, it, as in his formative years, as a weightlifter before he could afford to buy. Right. He, t-
0: yeah, he like tied cans, cinder to plunger, blocks, cinder blocks, and plunger. Yeah. I guess the plunger ends. Uh, so he was born Jose yeah. Serapio Palomino Gomez in 1927 in Los Angeles. But John, you found a copy of his draft registration card, mm-hmm. and that lists his name simply as Joe Gomez. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll post that on uh, X using the hashtag CTT OCT 23. Uh, his pre-wrestling career in bodybuilding has been well documented over the years. On our site, David Gibb wrote a profile of Pepper and talked about just some of his exploits in the field. But John... You found an article from 1945 discussing Pepper's success in another athletic endeavor when he was a senior at Garfield High School in L.A. What was that?
1: It was, that was uh, Pepper um, leading the Garfield gymnastics team to victory. And what's m- even more interesting here is that he was uh, known as Pepper
0: Gomez, <laughs> even in high even, school. Yeah, yeah even back in big... high school, he was Pepper yeah. Gomez.
1: Yeah, because I remember in like I think it's one of one uh, of one of the obituaries. I think it's Melter's obituary. He talks about like how the other weightlifters nicknamed him Pepper, uh, you know, because he had a, a hot temper. But like, I think the story uh, was because he had the same name as his father, and I think his mother uh, had a, a nickname for him like Peppy or something like okay, that, which like became... a little. Pepper, right. you know so that's how that was the became pepper. so a little interesting little so,
0: lineage there with his name. A, a few years later, he was named Mr. Muscle Beach. So not only was he you know a, a bodybuilding champion, but he won the, the championship of Muscle Beach. So that's like you know, like the world championships of all the bodybuilding championships. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also followed that up by being named Mr. San Pedro. Now, hearing mm-hmm. these reminds me of the wrestling angles when a uh, a wrestler would lose a loser, leave town match and come back as under a hood as Mr. Dothan or Mr. Jacksonville <laughs> or Mr. Timbuktu. Yeah. Um, but Pepper ends up getting into wrestling through Black Guzman, uh, also sometimes known as Blackie Guzman, who was mm-hmm. the brother of El Santo. Uh, he recruited him into pro wrestling, training him and getting him booked first in El Paso and later in Arizona. And John, you you uh, showed me an article uh, promoting a card in El Paso for January 4th, 1953, that included what is widely believed to be Pepper's first pro wrestling match. So, yep. uh, John, run down the card uh, for that show. What do we got here?
1: We got Mildred Burke. Women Wrestling Champion of the World facing Terry Majors. Uh, Ali Bay against Ray Piret. I'm not sure how that goes. Uh, and Cesar Sando in a handicap match. And he has to defeat both, both men within an hour or forfeit his purse under the handicap rules. In the prelims, we've got Mad Monty Ledoux. Uh, Returning. Uh, meeting the masked stranger. Uh, it's probably Buff Bagwell, right? <laughs> uh, and Tony, Tony Folletti, uh taking on young Pepper Gomez. I'm curious about Mad Monty. Lidia, yeah, that, that's an interesting
0: name that I'm not familiar with. Now, um, I think in this, in this match, which was almost certainly Pepper's first match, I think he blew his knee out. Oh, or, Jesus. I've heard that. But so... He spends a little time in El Paso, then goes to Tucson, uh, and then, of course, ends up in California, and the rest, as they say, is history. But Mm -hmm. in 1953, Pepper participated in a charity football game in Washington State, where a group of wrestlers faced members of the Seattle Ramblers. (laughs) Now, the Ramblers were part of the Greater Northwest Football Association, a loose affiliation Mm -hmm. of semi-pro teams in the Northwest and British Columbia. Other teams in this association included the Oak bay goblins and the c n c taxi vampires, which wow. was either a team sponsored by c and c taxi or a team that consisted of employees of the victoria british columbia based business c and c taxi, not to be confused with the c n c music factory Oh, uh, yes yes so With goblins and vampires, it's only fitting we're talking about this for our October episode. Ah, Uh, But my ah. favorite thing about this article, John, is where it lists the wrestlers who will be on one team. In addition to Pepper, you've got Luther Lindsay. Yeah. Ivan Kamroff and the masked Marvel. (laughs) So do you think he wore the mask during the game? Hey, there's a
1: photo uh, that says he's that he would not take off the, 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 the mask to play.
0: There's, and there. I think this was, I believe his name was Herb Knotts or Herb Knox. And he wrestled mostly as Buddy Knox for mo- oh. most of his career. Um, but I might have that name slightly wrong. I might have the real name slightly wrong. But he, his wrestling name for much of his career was Buddy Knox. As always, uh, John puts together a playlist of footage on YouTube, and and you've got a lot of Pepper footage. Um, So, uh, John, let's run through everything you have and pick one or two of the matches or segments to to talk a little bit more about for the others. Just tell us what they were, because we will put all this on a playlist on our YouTube channel. Cool, cool,
1: cool. So, look, there's a lot of of Pepper footage out there from the majority of his career, you know, I've got a match with him, Danny McShane from December 58, uh, him versus Dick, the bruiser, not sure of the date, probably early sixties, uh, tag match, Pepper and Wilbur Snyder versus Ox Baker, Dr. Big Bill Miller, uh, Pepper Gomez versus Bobby Heenan, in a Mexican strap match, Whew. 1974. um, I've got Pepper Gomez with uh, Alexis Smirnov Bobroof jumping off the ladder in San Francisco, late 70s. And lastly, Pepper Gomez versus Don Fargo, uh, Houston, 1979. Uh, I want to talk about the Pepper Gomez and Wilbur Snyder versus Oxbaker and Dr. Big Bill Miller match from 1974. Uh, Sam Menaker on commentator for this one. Typically, there are two types of tag team matches that I, as a Annoying wrestling nerd, enjoy watching. Uh, The first, my favorite is like the typical Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express type match. You know, with the the hot tags and the psychology and the high spots, meeting the mat wrestling. I love it, love it, love it. Cornette on the outside doing his thing, love it. Can't get enough. I've got 83 discs of Midnight Express matches. Three quarters of those are probably Midnight Express for rock and roll for um, matches. Or I like some older style like Crockett stuff with Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen or Gene and Oli doing the old block and tag thing. You know, cutting off the ring. Right. Love that stuff. And then there's a third kind of tag team match that I enjoy, which is this kind of tag team match, um, where the punches and kicks look terrible. Nothing holds up to any sort of scrutiny. There's zero psychology. No hot tags. Wilbur Snyder is probably the only one doing anything in this ring that looks remotely believable. Like Pepper Gomez is grabbing Ox Baker by, he's like a foot tall in him by his crazy facial hair. Ox looks like a little kid punching his dad in the stomach, you know, punching Pepper in his stomach, you know, like Pepper's no-selling it. But this match is just so damn entertaining. <laughs> um, I, there's, there's, there's no, there's nothing technically good about this from any aspect. It's just so entertaining and I can't, I, it, it, it I, I don't understand it. It's just so entertaining.
0: Uh, the crowd know, I mean, ba- loves and it. And that's the thing. And I, who ca- I love it. If the crowd is eating it up, who cares uh, if it's not, you know, five stars or whatever. I mean, Ox was never good. Um, Nope. I'm going to say 1974 is a little late for uh, Bill Miller and Wilbur Snyder to to really be able to do a whole lot. And would you agree with this statement, Pepper uh, John? Would you agree with this statement that Pepper's decline uh, from an in-ring standpoint was was pretty rapid?
1: Yeah, apparently bad knees. Apparently okay. he just he did a lot of the like the high flying stuff when he was young and by, by like 71, I think his knees are more
0: or less. And, and especially with that, much, with so much muscle on top to, to carry around that, that, yeah. that doesn't help your, your longevity either. No, no, so, no.
1: Yeah. Um, and the second uh, thing I want to talk about is the Pepper Gomez thing with the uh, Alexis Smirnoff, Bob roof, Rob Roop jumping off the ladder. Um, another version of the cast iron stomach gimmick that Pepper would do over the years. Uh, This time they have Smirnoff and Roop jump off the ladder onto his stomach, but instead of of going across his throat, they attack him with the ladder afterwards and leave him a bloody mess. So in contrast to the tag match we just talked about, I want to talk about one particular aspect of this angle here. Bob Roop jumps off the very tippity top of the ladder, comes down on Pepper knees first, and you can see how he sort of pulls it and works it. So he doesn't break his ribs or anything. But Alexis Smirnoff, who jumps off first, just lands, like, feet first, slamming onto the stomach of the prone Pepper Gomez. Just absolutely slams down on top. This looks, to me, through 2023 eyes, looks 100% real, like he's coming down... Full force onto to Pepper's stomach, and Pepper just sits right up like it is nothing. Like you, I cannot see through this move at all. I don't know how they're working this. I, I, I this mean, is
0: how these, and I think I, I truly think the answer is that they're not. I think, uh, you because know, I mean, all, uh, even even in today's wrestling, when they do the the stomps off the top rope onto a prone opponent on their stomach, it's just a matter of the the wrestler taking the blow, tensing up their their stomach muscles and yeah. uh, their abs, and and you know, there's really not much of a way to truly work it, especially, you know, nowadays with the high def cameras, you can't, you know, yeah. miss and your mark.
1: It, if that's how these angles were always presented, it's no wonder that people believed in him right. and his cast iron stomach, you know? yeah.
0: Well, I mean, he, you know, he reportedly, you know, I mean, again, given his bodybuilding bona fides, it, it's probably uh, at least somewhat legit that he, you know, did have yeah. an impenetrable, impenetrable stomach. Yes. Uh, so also,
1: yeah. I don't want to talk about any more matches, but there, I got a bunch up there of of Angles. Pepper basically yeah. being super, super Dave Osborne <laughs> in the '70s, with just getting hit with cigars and all sorts of stuff. It's just great, great stuff to watch. Yes, yeah, so
0: they've uh, got a, a an angle where Heenan burns Pepper with a lit cigar. And then you've got one where Fargo and uh, Private Don Fargo and Sergeant Goulet steal Pepper's hat. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, uh, of course, on our YouTube channel, just search for "charting the territories" on YouTube. We'll uh, put up a playlist, uh, a, a Pepper playlist, if you will. Uh, Pepper <laughs> is also featured in Greg Oliver and Stephen Johnson's book "Heroes and Icons," part of mm-hmm. their Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series. Uh, it's a very good and detailed uh, bio. Uh, John, what's the one thing one one thing you found interesting or, or, or want to mention uh, from that? article from that story. It's weird. I don't want to get the, 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 too morbid
1: or anything, but I did find it odd that Pepper's, you know, the, the build from the, you know, it's, it's cast iron stomach, this whole thing, and that he sort of died, like like intestinal-slash-stomach issues were, like, one of the reasons of this cause of death, which I thought was so, I don't want to say ironic, but just strange, you know?
0: Yeah, there's also a really, the, the last paragraph it really hits hard. Um, Uh, this is a story from Pepper's widow. Uh, One time, a a little boy uh, uh, used to go to the matches with his dad, but uh, the kid had cancer um, and asked Pepper to go to the hospital to see him. Uh, So Pepper took a picture. Uh, Pepper talked to the the young kid in the hospital and said, you're going to get better. When you do, you're going to sit in the front row and you're going to have to catch me when I come out of the ring. Uh, Unfortunately, the child didn't survive. Uh, never left the hospital. But the next time the father uh, came to the matches, he went to Pepper and and said, Pepper, I put your picture in my son's casket because he loved you so Uh, much. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, It's really hard to try and cover an entire territory for one calendar year in the span of a 90 minute or so podcast. So uh, be sure to visit chartingtheterritories.com to check out A Year in the Life where we have a lot more info uh, focused more on what's going on in the ring, the matches, the feuds, um, the, the spot ratings, uh, attendance figures we have, uh, some charts where I show uh, each wrestler's individual path during the year, like their, their week-to-week spot rating and who they were feuding with at those times. So check that out charting the territories.com. You can also go to payhipcom slash charting the territories to download a PDF of a year in the life. And not only the one this month for East Texas, but all the other ones we've done so far this year are available at that site, as are some other projects I've worked on and put out over the last couple of years. They're available to download as PDFs, and you can name your own price or download them for free. And if you want to learn even more about Leroy McGurk's territory in the first half of the 70s, you can head over to Amazon and purchase one or both of my books covering that territory. Uh, you can also you can search for Charting the Territories Al gets on Amazon. You can order them from me directly on the website at chartingtheterritories.com, and that way you'll get the, uh, a copy of the book autographed by yours truly. And my third book, which will cover the heart of America territory in the early 70s, will be out by year's end. Ooh, so that's wow. about it for this month. And as the weather is getting colder, I have made the foolish decision to head much further north for the territory we're going to cover next month. Not just north, John, but north of the border, as we will be covering the uh, Vancouver-based all-star wrestling promotion. Now, one of the top stars of the territory in 1971 was also one of the owners of the territory at the time, and he was a former world heavyweight champion. But he's not the only former world champ in the area during 1971. A wrestler who earlier in the year scored one of the most shocking world title wins in history spends the summer in Vancouver. Mm. There's also a bulldog, a couple of skulls, a <laughs> Mormon, and a football player turned pro wrestler who later became a clinical psychologist specializing in working with police crisis teams. Oh. And a wrestler named Butts. Oh, Butts! <laughs> so that's all coming next month, plus... As mentioned earlier, John will be not only playing Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia, but he will be competing yeah. against yeah. a worthy mm-hmm. challenger. And yeah. next month, John and I will reveal our Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot selections. Oh, yes. We did yes, this yes, last yes. year and we, we were the big O. Uh, none of either of our picks Yeah. made it to the Hall of Fame last year, so. uh, but we will uh, unveil our selections next month and explain why we voted for them. We hope Mm -hmm. you've learned some new things about how the territories functioned and about the wrestlers we've discussed and about East Texas. John and I, of course, are constantly learning new things, and it's time now for each of us to discuss one of those things on the segment we call This Month I Learned. So, John, Mm -hmm. what did you learn this month? So
1: one of the one of the many things I enjoy about the 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 territorial era of West wrestling is the the, the, the Wild West, if you will, or like the the, the open fan challenges, whether it's like Bob open the sugar hold challenge or guys like Dale Lewis, you know, who don't you pin pin me in thirty minutes and whatever, or Adrian Adonis a little later. Um, Most of the time, these go off without a hitch, and the pro wrestler disposes of the civilian relatively easily and quickly. But what we all enjoy the most, or at least what I enjoy the most, is when these things go horribly wrong. Uh, One such event that falls in this category at the time, uh, Mr. Wrestling. Tim Woods got part of his finger bitten off. I've known at this event for, for years. Most of us have heard of it. Didn't really know any of the details until fairly recently. I'd always assumed it was one of those spur-of-the-moment, fan-out-of-the-crowd things that just went sideways, like the like the Bob-William-Harding sugar-hold thing. Um, but this month I learned that this incident was a little bit different. Um, so on the December 12th, 1967 edition of the Columbus Ledger Enquirer, there was a little feature written on Mr. Wrestling. At the end of the interview, He offers $1,000 to anyone who could beat him under the rules of the National Wrestling Alliance. One fall, one hour time limit. He also mentions that the challenger must put up $200 of their own money because I don't do anything for free. Uh, A challenger comes forth. His name is Arnold Sperlin, who earlier in the 60s was a legit Golden Gloves boxer. The guy wasn't, you know, he's not Floyd Patterson by any stretch of the imagination, but he was more than just the average local tough guy. He's from Phoenix City, Alabama, right over the border. So, what's interesting to me that this was actually a scheduled match promoted as a challenge match with Sperlin's name in the paper, as opposed to just a generic challenge match that you usually see for this kind of thing. This specific match, you know, Mr. Wrestling versus Arnold Sperlin was promoted and advertised. So, story goes Sperlin shows up with all his tough guy buddies, uh, and the wrestlers surround the ring, sort of like a lumberjack match to keep his friends in check from running in or otherwise interfering right off the bat everything goes horrible sperlin a golden gloves boxer mind you sucker punches mr wrestling pulls off his mask and throws it at the crowd now mr wrestling had not yet been unmasked that we know of in columbus and if his identity was known it was not widely known to the point where he didn't feel a need to cover up so he's in this situation now trying to get his face covered until he gets his mask back and also not get beat up in a legitimate street fight uh gets his mask back gets down to business takes Spurlin down and just blows him up but Spurlin is able to get to the ropes uh he takes him down again as he's attempting to get a, a a cross face on him Spurlin chomps down on his hand biting off his ring finger at the first joint spitting it out right in front of lord littlebrook uh a few things from the newspaper article in the following day that are interesting. Both Mr. Wrestling and Sperlin are brought to the hospital where, where they allegedly almost resumed their match. Um, Sperlin suffered corneal abrasions. Uh, Mr. Wrestling's finger was reattached, apparently had some infections, got to receive additional treatment. Uh, Mr. Wrestling was admitted to the hospital under the name George Herman, which I thought was really interesting, Uh, given one of the reasons Tim Woods had to check out of the hospital early after the Crockett plane crash is because he gave his real name George Wooden. Uh, Two of Sperlin's buddies were arrested for disorderly conduct for fighting with police officers, Uh, and one of his buddies pulled a knife on one of the witnesses, who was identified as Leon Baxter. Leon Baxter is, of course, Tarzan Baxter, also known as the Wrestling Pro, and this evening he was wrestling as one half of the masked gauchos. Um... Johnny Walker was also on this card. So that was kind of a cool one card. You've got Mr. Wrestling, the future Mr. Wrestling 2, and the future Wrestling Pro wow. all on the same card. And one last Sperling footnote. He was shot in the chest outside a bar in Columbus in October of the same year. Wow. Uh, Did he survive? He survived the okay. attack. He survived the attack, uh, but no charges were ever filed in the case, oddly enough. so
0: yeah. That's a wild story. My this month I learned is far more milder than that. Uh, (laughs) So I actually had since our last episode, I had a few research trips. Um, I was in North Dakota and Minnesota, and then I was in Oregon. And when I do these trips, a lot of times I'm just looking to get original uh, source info for cards that uh, are already part of the, you know, wrestling collective knowledge. Um, In particular, Minnesota, I got a lot of stuff from Duluth that the results are already out there uh, from George Shire's book that he wrote with Mark James uh, for the AWA. But I always like to have the original, you know, documentation of the cards and the results uh, for my own records. Same thing with North Dakota, although I did find a handful of new of previously undocumented shows in North Dakota. Now, in Oregon, I was much more successful with finding new stuff. Um, I had a hunch that Medford, Oregon was run far more often than, than what's been documented so far. And my hunch was correct. Um, they ran generally every two or three weeks. So uh, for much of the early 70s, I, I got uh, as many cards and results as I could. Uh, and of course, we will incorporate this into our research when we cover the Pacific Northwest uh on this podcast and eventually i will will share this info with uh, wrestlingdata.com and they'll add it to their records um but it's amazing to me that uh even the territories where we have a subject matter expert uh like Barry Rose in Florida uh Dick Born in Mid Atlantic and Mike Rogers in uh Oregon, that there, there are still somehow shows that have gone undocumented. And, and yeah. part of what we do here at Turning the Territories is try and document those. I know uh Mike and uh Mike and his pal just came out with a new Portland book um where they have the results for every show held in Portland from I think from the beginning to the end. Uh and then they also have bios uh for every wrestler that uh worked at least one match in the sports arena. Um, so check that out. and, and uh, of course, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to them and offer to share my clippings from Medford, Oregon with them as well if they want to incorporate it into any of their future books. Uh, always happy to share uh, things with with some of these other wonderful historians who are doing uh, incredible work in documenting all this stuff. So for more from me, you can follow me on X, the uh, the thing formerly known as Twitter. At X. Al Gets Wrestling. You can also hear me on uh, episode 150 of Uncharted Territory, which is a podcast uh, run by uh, Corey and Chad Olson. Uh, I, of course, I've mentioned Chad before. He works with the Tregos Hall of Fame and the Dan Gable Museum in Iowa. Nice. Uh, but uh, this podcast is affiliated with Filsinger Games, who do the Champions of the Galaxy wrestling card game. Uh, I don't know if you ever played that when you were a kid, John. Yeah. Um, But uh, so, yeah, uh, they had been wanting to get me on for, we played tag for a few months, but I'm on episode 150 of uncharted territory. Just search for the uncharted territory podcast. Uh, Also, as I mentioned earlier, by the time this podcast comes out, I believe uh, my uh, obituary on Count Drummer, Bulldog Drummer, will be up on slamwrestling.com. So be sure to check that out. Uh, John, uh, where can our listeners find you? And uh, have you got anything that you've been working on that you would like to plug?
1: No, I have no plugs. You can find me on Twitter. God darn it. See? Not twitter, I can't uh, oh, it's how, twitter I, I, we all I, I, know whole, what it is. it's twitter. Uh, I find me on X <laughs> find me on x j o n underscore b o u c h e r I can i you know i i'm'm I'm there uh, I don't I don't retweet anything anymore. I repost yes yeah you know? um I don't tweet. I just post so you can find me there. um I have no nothing nothing in in the hopper. Going on right now. Um, I would just like to everybody check check your candy. You know, I earlier this month I found copies of Al's books inside my
0: uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. So be safe. Well, order I mean, the that's from like, Amazon. Well, that's what two great things you know uh, that go well together: Reese's yeah. peanut butter cups and uh, charting the territories books. Yes, they do. The charting the territories podcast comes out on the second Thursday of each and every month to be the first to know when new episodes are available. Subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, happy uh, October. Happy Halloween. And uh, we will see you in November. I can't believe
1: it's going to be November. See you then, folks.